This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And this is Volume 2, The Ancient World. Episode 27, Mohenjo-Daro. Correct to have a refresher of last week's episode, as the city of Mohenjo-Daro has come to be known as the most important site in terms of understanding the Indus Valley civilization. Mohenjo-Daro is the home of some wonderful secrets about the Indus Valley civilization, but in order for them to be understood with the deepest appreciation, we should set the scene. The Indus Valley civilization grew out of existing Neolithic populations in and around the Indus River Valley and the Indus River System, as well as the Gagahakra River. These lands were very fertile and fruitful due to the regular flooding that could be irrigated to bring water and silt to ploughed fields. This agrarian success would lead to the construction of granaries in order to store surplus stock on which trade links could be built and there seemed to be enough to go around with very little evidence of power struggles or military battles. Animal agriculture would be coupled with agrarianism. Cattle could be used to draw ploughs and goods vehicles so that the mobility of the Indus Valley merchants was good and that large amounts of goods could be moved around the different settlements. With such agricultural and economical success, the Indus Valley civilization was able to attract a wealth of materials into their region, allowing artisans to be able to achieve expertise in the use of ceramics, metals and gemstones to create desirable objects such as sculptures and textiles, especially with the use of the cotton that they were able to produce. Statues and sculptures of humans and animals were being created, but we believe that there was less of a spiritual seriousness about these people compared to other ancient societies due to a lack of palace and temple buildings. Some of the animal images were depicted on seal stamps that are accompanied by what looks to be a type of script that is yet to be deciphered. Coastal Indus Valley communities would construct dockyards which would likely be the home of mercantile ships that would enable societies to take their goods to far off lands such as Mesopotamia where they would be able to set up trade embassies to ensure a permanent trade link. So now we can explore some of the wonderful facts about Mohenjo-Daro which may pleasantly surprise you and possibly ensure that you will never look upon the Indus Valley civilization in quite the same way ever again. Mohenjo-Daro R.G. Banerjee was an Indian archaeologist born in 1885. Banerjee studied at the University of Calcutta based in the modern Indian city of Kolkata 
and achieved a Master of Arts in History in 1911 when he joined the Archaeological Survey of India, an ongoing project that was established in 1861. When Banerjee joined the project, he was working under the directorship of a British scientist called Sir John Marshall. It would be Banerjee himself who would discover the site of Mohenjo-Daro, about 600 kilometres southwest of the site of Harappa, discovered at a similar time. The similarities between the two sites led to archaeologists labelling the sites as belonging to the same cultural origins, which we know today as the Indus Valley Civilization. It was something of a surprise to many that there could be a pre-Hindu civilization in existence. The one thing we can observe about the construction of the city is the fact that it is quite unlike anything that we have seen already. Not only were the streets and houses built in well-organized straight lines and using bricks of uniform size and shape laid in carefully offset courses, but it also looks very modern in its planning and construction. But we must remember that it is over a thousand years old. This sophisticated urban construction is typical of the Indus Valley civilization, so it is not just limited to the one city. Why thoroughfares acted as the main roads through the city on which the cattle-drawn vehicles of merchants and farmers could locomote from one place in the city to another. Narrower side streets would grant access to carefully built large townhouses where the citizens would reside. The streets would be constructed in a grid fashion, perpendicular to each other, and this would enable breezes to flow through the city and keep a flow of clean air coming through the streets. A fascinating aspect of these streets is the existence of lamp posts along them. It is not completely clear what the purpose of these posts were, but the general consensus is that it points towards some method of street lighting. This isn't necessarily out of the question. Should the residents of Mohenjo-Daro be able to mount some burnable material above the street that could create enough light for people to be able to see what they were doing, then it would be possible that the town could produce more as it could potentially extend the working hours of the city. Strange brick constructions were found at the junctions between perpendicular streets. These constructions would be cuboid in appearance with a large opening in the top in which archaeologists believe that unwanted materials would be placed. Therefore, they are believed to be ancient dustbins. If so, then they were probably emptied regularly and if that is the case, then the city must have been governed by a form of council who organised such civil services. The Indus Valley brick used to build Indus Valley buildings are very standardised. And if you recall during the last episode, there were weights discovered that would have undoubtedly related to the measurement of goods such as grain to ensure that standardised amounts were exchanged. 
the discovery of what appears to be a ruler at the dockyard city of Lotal, which we also discovered in last week's podcast, suggests that there was a uniformity of length measurements, and this is likely to have been transposed to their brick production. Each brick was double the size of its width in length, and half the size of its width in depth. They were carefully arranged in straight lines, and the straight line walls would create a rectangular building. As for the buildings themselves, once again, they are something worth talking about. The residential buildings could vary in size depending in which part of Mohenjo-Daro you lived. So if you were a simple agricultural worker without much skill, you would likely have been in the ordinary part of town. But if you were a skilled metal worker who could create a wealth of desirable objects, then you may have lived in a larger house in a more desirable area of the city. Some of the houses would have more than one storey and perhaps as many as three. The rooms would have been spacious, but due to the Indus Valley civilization being a civilization noted for its high levels of cleanliness, it has been difficult to determine the purpose of each individual room due to a lack of evidence. Most of the houses were constructed with mud bricks that would be intelligently used to provide as much insulation as possible to those inside. The best bricks were fire hardened and were sometimes used to build external waterproof walls, but more likely only on the more important buildings. The central focus of the city would have been the citadel, which was the highest point of the city, and the residential buildings demonstrate that this would have been where the more affluent members of society lived, with the commoners living in the lower city. The houses were nonetheless compromised of many rooms. It is unlikely that these houses would have had first floor window openings, just simply the entrance door which would have faced outwards to the outside world and inwards to an internal wall which would have been there to prevent inclement weather flowing through the building and restrict privacy. Each house seems to have had a central area which has been referred to as a courtyard and could have been a communal room of the building. It is not unreasonable to imagine the residents of Mohenjo Daro playing a board game as the citizens of Or did as well if you recall in episode 3. The board games appear to involve counters being placed and probably moved around on a grid. This is similar in principle to the royal game of Or. Some of the earliest known dice were discovered in Mohenjo-Daro, carefully constructed cubes made from clay, and described in detail by Sir John Marshall, the British Director of Archaeological Survey of India, whom we mentioned earlier. Sanitation A notable feature of the houses in Mohenjo-Daro was their drainage systems, which appeared to be quite unlike anything that we have stumbled across yet. We mentioned that the perpendicular nature of the street layout allowed winds to travel 
from one side of the city to the other unhindered and that this would help to keep the streets free of debris. Well, it does seem like the tidiness and cleanliness was a very important thing to the Indus Valley civilization. We also spoke of waste disposal receptacles being placed on street corners that allowed residents the ability to clean up their waste efficiently. However, wastage is not something restricted to pieces of wood or animal carcasses, but also human feces. So part of the residential area would have been specifically constructed for the purpose of such human bodily functions. Latrines would have been linked to a brick-built draining system in which water waste would have flowed down channels away from the residences. It appears that limestone was favoured to waterproof pipework. It was also a very sturdy material that wouldn't require much maintenance. However, just as our ancient dustbins may have required somebody to empty them out, our drainage pipes would have also required personal maintenance. So waste cleaners would have been employed to carry one of the more unpleasant civil services of Mohenjo-Daro. Up in the citadel, a great bath was constructed. The great bath was a huge communal area of over 80 square metres in size, which has been supposed as a place of ritual bathing and cleansing. The bath itself was carefully created with brickwork set in gypsum mortar and sealed with bitumen. Water would enter the bath from a well and leave via a drain. People could access the bathing area by descending down a flight of steps into the water from either end of the recess. It is possible that archaeologists believe that this communal bathing area was used for ritual purposes because the ability to wash oneself was conveniently possible in one's own house. It might be the case that people showered underneath a large pot of water which would have been slowly poured over the person either by themselves or somebody else. Any wastewater would have drained away through the drainage system that had been constructed in the house and would join the city's main draining system outside. Any water that was required by the household would be accessible from the numerous wells scattered around the city. Estimates have been made of around 700 wells that existed in the city. The wells would have needed to have been maintained and appear to have been repaired and rebuilt throughout its period of usage. Their deep circular shape is evident through excavation and we do not have a contemporary deep cylindrical well design in Egypt or Mesopotamia so it appears that the cylindrical well originated with the Indus Valley civilization and this would make sense because their civilization is clearly an innovator for water irrigation and sanitation methods. Storage Sir Mortimer Wheeler was a British archaeologist born in Glasgow, Scotland in the year 1890. 
after volunteering his services to the British cause in both the First and Second World War. He negotiated a deal where he would complete his immediate military duties before assuming the position of Director General of the Archaeological Survey of India in 1944, the same position that had been held by Sir John Marshall between 1902 and 1928. Wheeler was brought in after some fierce criticism of the quality of the survey by respected names in the field, such as Sir Leonard Woolley, who we met in episode 3 regarding the Mesopotamian city of Ur. It's also worth noting at this point that Wheeler also travelled to be with the British Egyptologist Sir Flinders Petrie on his deathbed in Jerusalem in 1942. So we can see how influential British archaeologists were in the excavations of ancient sites throughout the world during this period. Let's not forget Sir Arthur Evans, whose work at Minoan sites was considerable during the early 20th century also. It would be around the year 1950 that Wheeler would identify a large building that he would suggest was in use for the storage of surplus agricultural produce, with evidence of air vents and areas where wooden staircases would have once been. There would have been constructed bays within this warehouse that may have represented storage areas for different kinds of produce. Similar buildings have been discovered in other Indus Valley civilization cities. These great granaries would have received the agricultural surplus of Mohenjo-Daro and all of its surrounding villages. The air vents and ducts would have kept the produce cool and dry after it had arrived on the cattle-drawn carts and the produce carefully stored in the correct bay. However, the 1940s was not just an important time for Sir Mortimer Wheeler, but also for India as a country. The Second World War had ended in 1945, at a time when India was still under British rule. However, Britain was not in a good position to sustain its colonies and arranged for India to assume independent rule. The great differences in feelings between Hindus and Muslims rendered it impossible for a general consensus about how the handover should be conducted to be agreed. So, therefore, an Islamic Republic called Pakistan was established from some of the former lands of the British Raj and Mahendra was within Pakistan. A difference of opinion between Sir Mortimer Wheeler and the new Pakistani government caused Wheeler to opt to not return to Mahendra during the 1950s. Stratified Society Archaeologists have observed that there seems to be a difference between Indus Valley civilization and other societies in Mesopotamia and Egypt in terms of the balance between religious and secular practice. The Indus Valley civilization has been noted as having a lack of palaces and temples compared to the others. However, it may just be the case that we do not have a good understanding of what we are observing when we are excavating the cities such as Mahendra Darrow 
and that we are erring on the side of caution when stating that there are no obvious secular buildings. Certainly, Sir John Marshall, the director of the Archaeological Survey of India for a large part of the early 20th century, and somebody whom we mentioned earlier, declared that he had discovered a palace in Mohenjo-Daro. And Massimo Vidali of the Department of Archaeology University of Padua in Italy published a study in 2010 of the discovery and its interpretations. And you can access this online. The existence of palaces would verify the presence of a stratified society where there would be a class-based society with an elite class or an upper class at the top and a slave class or a working class at the bottom. My opinion is that it is surely not possible to have such a well-organised city as Mohenjo-Daro with everything that we have already mentioned without stratification and without there being something that the society in general are able to identify with. When I say something to identify with, I am referring to a common cause, and that common cause could be the pursuit of wealth or aspirations, or the pursuit of spiritual acceptance by pleasing your deities, or even your family and peers. Everyone would have had to have believed that it was right to have pulled their weight in the city, so there would have had to have been an understood mode of conduct, and this mode of conduct would have needed to have been acceptably policed by an elite class. As Yuval Noah Harari suggests in his book Sapiens, large societies need a code to follow in order to remain organised, and without the code it will fragment as the human will of independent thought and belief would cause the society to fall apart, with different people believing in different directions. If the leadership was weak, then a challenge will grow and ultimately overthrow the existing elite, creating a new and stronger elite. And this is why I believe that stratification must have existed. The great bath that was previously mentioned demonstrate that there may have been a very important looking entranceway and that may have well been controlled so that only certain members of society were granted entrance. This would be supported by the existence of what appears to be a smaller communal bathing area and large bathing areas within neighbourhoods and residential complexes. The biggest mystery is the identity of the head of society in Mohenjo-Daro. In Mesopotamia and Egypt, we had king lists to refer to and a list of deities, so we had a good idea of who was leading society and who society looked to honour. The lack of a decipherable script in the Indus Valley makes it difficult to establish these facts in this civilization. Religion So, if we are struggling to identify individual monarchs, then could the city of Mohenjo-Daro have been run by an elite class of priests? There have been a lot of speculations over the years about spirituality in Mohenjo-Daro. 
What significance does ritual cleansing have if this is believed to be the purpose of the communal baths? Who was the priest king sculpted in the statue discovered in Mohenjo-Daro and was he even a priest or a king? Is the elevated citadel a place of religious observance? Do any of the images on seals suggest a spiritual inclination? Can later religions such as Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism offer us a clue within its own origins compared to what we see in Mohenjo-Daro? An important discovery of the late 1920s in Mohenjo-Daro is an object that has been named the Pashupati seal. The seal shows a human figure wearing elaborate clothing and seated in what appears to be the lotus position and the figure is surrounded by a number of animals and symbols. The human figure appears to be on other seals also so this points towards a universal knowledge of the figure within society. The seal has been the subject of intense scrutiny. It is called the Pashupati seal because Sir John Marshall interpreted the human figure to be an early example of the Hindu deity Shiva. This is because Pashupati is a form of Shiva that is recognised as the lord of the animals so it seems obvious that this may represent an early form of Pashupati seated in a yoga position. However, there has been much contention about this with many other experts saying that this could very easily be a misinterpretation of the image and that it would be too assumptive to regard this image to definitely be Pashupati. If the seals discovered represent deities then we can suppose that Indus Valley civilizations were polytheistic and anthropomorphism which is the fusion of human and animal aspects is apparent on these seals. The speculation about bathing rituals within Mohenjo-Daro would be fueled by the modern rituals of Hindu society. Ritual bathing, such as those carried out by Hindus, when both within Hindu temples when sprinkling holy water upon the heads of worshippers from a pot called a kalash, right through to the mass pilgrimages to the Ganges River where Hindus immerse themselves in the sacred waters seem to be a progression from the importance of irrigation, sanitation and bathing of Mohenjo-Daro. A connection seems likely. Chronology The city of Mohenjo-Daro appears to have risen to prominence sometime around the 26th or 25th century BCE. Archaeologists suggested that the city may have been flooded on a number of occasions. The citadel would have likely been protected from the floods but the lower city would have been much more vulnerable. So it is believed that much of Mohenjo-Daro would have had to have been rebuilt over the course of the seven or eight hundred years during which it was occupied. Some experts recognise the fact that human intervention with nature even if it is just simply agricultural irrigation of water, may have long-term effects on the success of an ancient city. Altering the natural course of a river by construction of canals 
may be a wonderful thing to feed the fertility of crop fields for a period, but what happens when an abundance of flood water infiltrates the canals and destroys the crop fields and even some of the buildings surrounding them? Undoubtedly, the silt of the flood waters would have been good for crop yields initially, but as we have seen elsewhere, too much silting will cause agricultural land to become infertile, therefore putting pressure on farmers to relocate and move around, which then requires the constant modification of irrigation systems. If a population expands, then the pressures of surviving the unpredictability of nature can prove to be disastrous. If a society is forced to recover quickly, there is a very distinct danger of famine if the granaries are not full of produce or the outlying villages are not contributing enough resource to the city. However, it does seem that the city of Mahenjo-Daro continued to recover from each of these setbacks by rebuilding and reinventing itself. The organisation of its society must have been vital to this success. After 1900 BCE, it would appear that there was a new period of decline. This not only affected the city of Mahenjo-Daro, but the entire Indus Valley civilization. There appears to be a clear evidence of a fragmentation of cultures as societies are likely to have become much more insular in terms of protecting their own interests. The luxury of considered time and effort when it came to rebuilding Mahenjo-Daro could not be sustained and towards the end we see less considerate building efforts. The uniformity of the streets seemed to have declined. Houses were built from recovered bricks instead of standardised bricks, which we have boasted of previously. Drains that were a celebrated part of the city were left to fall into a state of disrepair. The decline was rapid. It is very difficult to pinpoint the reason why, but it seems obvious that society must have been affected by a dramatic change in fortune. Although it was speculated that there was a migration of Indo-Europeans into the region called the Aryans and originally suggested by Sir Mortimer Wheeler, it does appear that the decline of the Indus Valley civilization occurred long before the Aryan migration. There is little evidence of a violent battle. If the monsoons which encouraged the river flows of the Indus Valley altered their behaviour, then this could have affected the societies of the Indus Valley in the same way that the alteration of the Nile floods caused a rapid decline of the Old Kingdom of Egypt. There is evidence of disease such as malaria from the skeletons discovered from this period. More settlements appear to have emerged in the Gujarat region of modern India which suggests a migration away from the Indus Valley. The people of Mohenjo-Daro, who had found that their civilised way of life had been compromised by insurmountable pressures, had to make the tough decision to abandon their city. A city where one of their last acts was to bury their dead face down in a hasty manner and lacking ceremony. The ultimate discovery of these skeletons led to the city gaining the name that we know today. Mohenjo-Daro, the Mound 
of the dead men. Everywhere we go in the ancient world, we continue to stumble across Indo-European peoples, whether it be the Hittites, the Greeks or the Aryans. So next week, we are going to investigate exactly who the Indo-Europeans are and why they are so important. Thank you very much to everyone who's listened to the podcast this week. And as ever, we remind you that if you wish to support the podcast, you can do it in one of two ways. Either visit the Patreon link on the website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com and pledge a monthly donation. There are rewards that can be earned for cumulative donations. So have a, have a look, check that out. And the other way is by rating and reviewing the podcast on your chosen podcast platform. So if you haven't done one of those things yet and you're a regular listener, please consider it as it really does help the podcast. And when the podcast ends, that doesn't necessarily mean that the whole discussion ends for another week because we have an interact section on the podcast as well. Namely, the discussion forum is a great place to come and share your opinion about the stories that you've heard or even share stories that you know of that haven't been mentioned within the podcast. And opinions are great when it comes to history. So my opinion is one thing, but it's no more important than any of your opinions. So you should come forward and let me know what you think and then we can open up a discussion and hopefully keep the podcast continuing even when we're off air. You can also see the different platforms of social media that we are live on at the moment. On Twitter, uh, James W.J. Robinson uh, has uh, recommended the podcast to um, a few people that he knows. So um, if you want to recommend the podcast to others, then that is really, really helpful. So consider doing that. We're always very grateful to Ryan Stitt of the highly acclaimed History of Ancient Greece podcast. He always promotes our episodes on his uh, on his social media platform. So we're really, really grateful to him for that. Likewise, we're very grateful to Ali, who on CastBox has recommended the History of the World podcast and put, this is the best podcast. Chris is so knowledgeable and his narrative style is exceptional. I subscribe to several history casts and this one is my favourite. I highly recommend it. She's also told me off for apologising when the podcast is longer than usual, but I'm always conscious of fitting into a time frame. I think it's quite important that the podcast always remembers itself and doesn't overrun too frequently, too often, because people tend to get used to a particular size of podcasts and it fits in nicely with their plans and uh, I should always be mindful of that, but I do appreciate what you're saying, Ali, that you do enjoy the podcast, and so for you, if I overrun by a few minutes, it's not a problem, so thank you very much, thank you so much for such a glowing review. Now then, if you want to send a message to the History of the World podcast, by all means do so, the email address is historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And if you're kind enough to do so, or you review us online, then I'll always be happy to read your message out on one of the broadcasts. So you'll be immortalised as part of the History of the World podcast broadcasts. 
and also similarly uh, Apple podcast reviewers I normally read them out once a month because they get collated and sent to me in one great bundle so if you've rated me on uh, or if you've reviewed the podcast on Apple Podcasts recently and I haven't read it out don't worry um, in a couple of episodes time you will probably be, have your review read out so I haven't forgotten about you but I do always read them out once a month that tends to be the routine so hold tight and you will hear your review read out on the broadcast well that's all for this week next week we've got a somewhat strange podcast compared to others in which we discuss the Indo-European so it might sound like that we're going to be talking about another culture but actually the Indo-Europeans are well they're actually derived from a, a culture called the Proto-Indo-Europeans and the Proto-Indo-Europeans are a hypothesized culture based on the languages of the modern world so it should be very interesting to find out a little bit more about them and how they link many of us together so one to look forward to, something very different next week, the Indo-European. So please be sure to join me next week. Until then, have yourselves a lovely week and we'll do it all over again this time next week. The History of the World podcast is available on many different podcast platforms. So please don't forget to rate and review us wherever you find us. Visit our website at historyoftheworldpodcast.com and email us at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com Support the podcast at Patreon by clicking the Support the Podcast link at our website and join us on social media at Facebook, Twitter and Tumblr.